seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1. But last Sunday, we finished Colossians chapter 1. And the final paragraph of that uh, that chapter expounds on the implications of what it's going to look like in your life if you submit to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in and over all things. Because Jesus is the creator God and he is also the redeeming God. His redemption gives us a new life in which we seek to proclaim the good news of his finished work on the cross. And then after that, to teach people who believe the gospel just exactly how they are to live in light of that truth. Jesus does not just simply save us from sin and then leave us in a static state of continuing in that sin. Rather, Jesus gives us a new life through faith. Jesus changes our position and our purpose and our mission in this life to align with his very own. Because of Jesus, we have both the privilege and the potential to live out his design through his mission in this world for the sake of others. Today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And in that, what I hope you see is that Paul focuses on what binds the church together for the cause of his gospel. It cannot be reduced to simply an emotional experience, nor can it simply be reduced to a gathering because of some common affinity that we have outside of the gospel. Rather, Paul casts a compelling vision for a community that actually anchors down into the truth of the gospel to live out Jesus's mission in organized discipleship. This is how we ensure that faith is multiplied continually in the lives of others. To put it bluntly, as the title suggests, Paul casts a vision for living an actual Christian life according to his design. I want to start reading in Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Paul really tells us two compelling things to begin with. He tells us that unity and love are dependent on the truth. Unity and love are dependent on the truth. I want to start by talking about that term unity. That's what he's talking about when he says they need to be knit together. Unity requires a common goal. That's obvious. But for some people, they believe that the church, they believe that Jesus is about unity above absolutely everything else. And this is simply false. As a concept, I want you to understand, unity is meaningless without a common goal that brings it meaning. I don't know if you realize this, but you can unite around a million meaningless things. You see people do it all the time. But more than that, worse than that, you can also unite around a million lies. And if unity is ultimately based on something that is either untrue or even worse, destructive, then unity is a bad thing. Unity is not always positive. Unity frequently 
is actually a very negative thing that you must avoid because unity necessitates something to be united around. And if you are united around the wrong things, you may unite right off of a cliff with everyone else as they go off of it. And that, of course, should be avoided. In this section, Paul speaks of his desire for the church to be united, but not for the sake of unity. Paul says they need to be united through and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the truth is not the common goal, unity is unhelpful. Unity is ungodly. And division would actually be a good thing. There are many circumstances, there are many contexts, there are many scenarios where division is the healthiest thing that you can seek. If people are believing lies, you do not help them by joining in on their delusions, do you? No. You help them by exposing the lie. You help them by giving them the truth. Here's the deal. Biblically, you help them by actually promoting division with them. To show there is a difference between me and you. I have truth in my life. You have lies in your life. Friends, when you seek unity above all else, you will not help anything. You will not help anyone. You will ultimately unite people in folly rather than the wisdom that God has in his scripture. But Paul, again, speaks of his continuing work in the church while he talks about this issue of unity and the issue of love. Why does he talk about his struggle for them? Well, he wants them to know about his work because that is what he actually wants them to unite with him in. But it's because of what his work is for. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul speaks of endurance for the sake of other Christians to young Pastor Timothy. He writes, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of Christians, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so you see right there, in speaking of the work that the apostle is enduring for the sake of the elect, Paul gives them the uniting principle. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But towards the end of that, I hope you picked up something very important. Paul speaks of division towards the end of that. Necessary division. He says, if we deny him, what does he do? He doesn't look at us and be like, well, I'm sure you have your reasons. Let's stay united. No, he says, Jesus is going to deny you. Jesus will divide from you. Jesus is not going to stay united with you no matter what. Jesus requires faith in him in order to have unity. If we are faithless, does Jesus join us in our faithlessness? No, it says Jesus stays faithful. He can't deny himself. Jesus cannot be unfaithful to himself. Therefore, if you are unfaithful, Jesus will not join you in your error. His mission aims, Paul's does, to multiply his faith in other people's lives. He's not saying our greatest objective and what I am enduring and what I am struggling for is that we can be united with other people no matter what. That's the foolishness you'll hear in our contemporary era. Unity above all else. I hear it all the time. I hear it in secularism. And frankly, unfortunately, I hear it with many churches today. 
They said, oh no, if you talk about this, you're going to bring division, even within the entire denomination. I got news for you. There's a lot of denominations in this world that need a good, healthy dose of division in it. Even the Southern Baptist Convention, friends. If we go away from faithfulness, we must divide from those that would be unfaithful. We must stay faithful regardless of the cost because Paul is telling us right here that he will pay the cost. It is the outcome of the gospel of Jesus that Paul is seeking and nothing else. He uses a very important term to describe his efforts. He uses the term struggle. And you know, last week, an important part of the third point was that term toil that he used. When he says struggle in this section, it's actually a completely different word than toil. Toil meant an exhaustive effort. Struggle speaks more of the emotion that he's putting in. It's a word that we translate as agony. And so Paul is saying, I am agonizing for you and for those at Laodicea. Why is Paul so passionate about the church that he would endure an agonizing work for their sake? Most of you have spent most of your life avoiding hard work. Why would Paul go straight in and say, this is what I am living for? For one reason, because the gospel is worth it. According to the Apostle Paul, that's the reason that he always gives. Because truth is always worth sacrifice. It is the mindset that his faith in the gospel has actually given him towards his life. Second thing that he speaks of in point one is love. But he seeks a love that knits together, that love that promotes unity. Knits together requires that common bond that we're talking about still. Through Paul's work, he wants the church to be knit together in love. And that is an important phrase for us to understand in our contemporary era. This is what people should find when they come into the church. This is what I hope you have found in the church. This is what the culture around us should see. Uh, apologist and great philosopher, I believe, Francis Schaeffer, called the love shared within the church the final apologetic to a watching world. What he's saying is, is that the love that the church has is an uncommon bond with no competitors. No one else can have it. It is truly what is unique about the church of Jesus Christ. But the question must be asked, why? Is it because love is love? As so many people say, of course not. Love must have meaning. Love must be anchored to something that is real or it is worthless and it is a lie. Why? Because unity is ultimate. No, that's not what Paul says. What does Paul continue to come back to in the book of Colossians? The reason that we're knit together in love is again, for one reason, because Jesus Christ is Lord. That is how we know love. He has exerted his lordship by sacrificing his life on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, if you want to know what love is, you must define it by Jesus Christ. Or you cannot ultimately know what love is. And that is a problem that so many in an unbelieving world struggle with. Because without Jesus, love is unknowable. Love then must become an arbitrary thing that each individual gives definition to. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but that's not working out too great. That's turning into quite a chaotic thing in our world, in our culture, and especially in the lives of people outside of the church. You can make it whatever you want love to be in our culture, and that is destructive. But because of Jesus, 
Love has an objective definition that you can anchor your love towards, that you can actually be about, that you can actually be guided with. Otherwise, love can ultimately become a very selfish thing. And when love becomes a selfish thing, love becomes a destructive thing. Love begins to cause ruin rather than giving you the life that God has designed for you to have. As soon as you will find something, if that is your definition of love, that it's just all about you and it's all about the definition that you give it to, it doesn't require an objective definition, then you will move from thing to thing for your entire life because love will ultimately be about what makes you feel good. Well, I mean, really, if you're honest with yourself, that's the definition of love that the world is going with. If it, if it makes you feel good, must be true, must be good, can't be ruined, your truth. As soon as you find something, though, that makes you feel better, what do you do? You have to move to that thing. So love can't last the rest of my life. Love can't be committed to. Because as soon as you make, stop making me feel valuable, I have to find something or someone else that makes me feel valuable. And I have to abandon you because I have to live for love. Love then becomes some arbitrary mist that you're chasing with your life. And by the end of it, you will find a record of chaos behind you where you have abused yourself and ultimately you have abused others. Because you're believing and you're seeking lies. So what is it that knits the church together in love? It is the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is pointing us towards. It's the fact that Jesus is our Lord. It's the fact that we are his people. It's the fact that he has called us to be and make disciples in order to build the church of Jesus. That is the love that Jesus in his gospel gives great definition to. And that is what Paul anchors love in. Therefore, without love, again, it is that arbitrary thing because for the love to be knowable, it necessitates a truth as its foundation. And because of Jesus, truth can be known and it must be the anchor for the Christian community. Friends, I have seen people come into even this church. I've seen people find relationships. I've seen people find things to do. I've seen people find a purpose for themselves. And it always amazes me that I'll watch those same people as soon as those things become familiar or as soon as the emotional high that they initially felt begins to fade or as soon as they find something else new and shiny that makes them feel significant, makes them feel more important, they quit. So what was the problem? Was it the church? No. The problem was at the foundation of that person. They weren't seeking Jesus Christ at all. They were seeking to feel better about themselves. Friends, I can tell you right here and right now, the church does not exist so that you can feel valuable. The church does not exist so that you can feel lovely. The church does not exist so that you can feel better about yourself. If that's what you're here for, if that's what you're doing, I can guarantee you that sooner rather than later, the feeling will fade. You will feel like someone else is getting the attention that you want and you feel like you deserve. And you're not feeling as significant in this community as you feel like you should get. And what are you going to do? You're going to chase it somewhere else. 
And the same thing is going to happen there. Same thing is going to happen there. Same thing is going to happen there. Let me ask you a question. How many churches have you been in to make yourself feel better? And how's that going for you? It might last for a minute. It might last for a season. But that's not what God has designed you to be about. And it certainly isn't what God has designed his church to be about. God has designed his church and the people in his church to know Christ and to make him known to other people. That is the purpose for which we are here. And that is the love that knits us together. Therefore, if you will not make your life about that, I can tell you at some point or another, we're not going to be united. There will be a necessary division because without being knit together, this has an expiration date. And for us to be knit together in love, you need the objective truth of Jesus Christ in order to endure in faith. But Paul continues. I want to go back to verse two. There's another term in there that we need to talk about. He says he wants to see them face to face. He's never met them. That their hearts may be encouraged because, excuse me, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I want to talk about the negative of what Paul's saying here. Number two this morning, encouragement can be deceptive. Encouragement can be deceptive. How do I know that? Because Paul says that he wants them to be encouraged, but he doesn't just say he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be encouraged in a specific thing, and he wants them to be encouraged for a specific thing. He wants them to be encouraged in what? In Christ. And he wants them to be encouraged for what? For Christ. But so many of us seek encouragement in something else. And Paul writes... There are going to be people that are going to come in here and they're going to try to delude you with what? Plausible arguments. So Paul says you need to be encouraged in Christ, but look out because some people are going to try to deceive you even with encouragement. You can be encouraged in the wrong things because so many of you, when life is all about how you feel, you're going to look for the wrong type of encouragement because you just want to be encouraged because you want to feel encouraged. And so you're going to seek out somebody that will encourage you just because you need to be encouraged. What if you don't need encouragement right now? And you say, how could that be possible? Everyone always needs encouragement. No, sometimes people need to be gratefully discouraged. Some of the most helpful conversations I've ever had, I walked away feeling terrible about myself. Why? Because they had to tell me some hard truths about things that I was getting really wrong in life. 
But for many of you, that's going to be the point of division because you will not hear anything negative about yourself and find it helpful because all that you want people to do is encourage you to make you feel good. Even if you're giving your life to a bunch of folly, to a bunch of destructive things, you want to be encouraged in your folly. You want to be encouraged in your destructive things. For many of you, this concept is unfamiliar. A few years ago, a phrase became popular in some circles. And that's the phrase that's very true. It's the phrase, facts don't care about your feelings. As society kind of crumbled in 2021 through 2022, this phrase became almost a call to people to understand that your feelings can lie to you. And so many of you, even though you would claim faith in Jesus Christ, you still live by feeling, don't you? Even though God has given you a much surer word, you won't do something because it just don't feel like it's something I should do. Who cares how you feel? Why do you care so much how you feel? How's feeling working out for you? So many of you, every big decision you've made in your life, be honest, you've made it because you felt a certain way. And how did all those work out for you? You got 100% success rate on feeling the right thing? I've just got a gut. Might have eaten some bad nachos. I get a gut too when I do that. Be careful, friends. Your feelings are not always factual. The only way to know if your feelings are factual is if you can look at the objective anchor of your life, which must be the gospel of Jesus Christ, and say, do my feelings match what God has said in his word? But for so many of you, you don't diagnose your feelings that way because even though you would say the scripture is authoritative, even though you would say scripture is sufficient, you live as though your feelings are authoritative and your feelings are significant and moment by moment feelings are actually dictating how you react to others, how you make choices, how you treat others and how you live in this world. And that is why when you get alone, you know the truth. You are miserable. But you are so deceived that you walk away giving credence to your misery rather than repenting of your emotions. Jeremiah 17, 9. We must be reminded of this. Prophet Jeremiah writes and he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then he continues in verse 10 and he says, God judges based on your actions. We are conditioned by this culture to have a goal to feel better about ourselves. I mentioned that word encourage in verse two. It's a vital term. It's a term in the original language that literally means to call alongside. In other words, it is about your relationship with other believers, that you come alongside one another. Paul wants to come alongside of them. He wants to help them in following Jesus Christ. But his encouragement has a design. It has a purpose. It has submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What we have done with the idea of encouragement is to encourage no matter what. 
But read the text. Paul qualifies it. He encourages on a foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ. And without that, it is meaningless. Without the truth of Christ, we will believe lies in order to feel better about everything. I've seen people living such destructive lives, hurting others, abusing others, manipulating others, lying to others, sinning continually. And then you confront them with that. And some of you have done this. How does that work out for you? Not well, usually. Ah, you're being so discouraging. I refuse to listen to your negativity. You better start listening to some negativity because you, you're living a negative life. And you need to repent of your sin. Therefore, you will, if you refuse to hear a discouraging word that's necessary, you will be tempted to seek encouragement to the extent that even encouragement will deceive you to remain in a sinful state. Beware of being encouraged away from the anchor of truth because it happens. I want you to realize that the same term that Paul uses for encouragement here in Colossians chapter 2 is the root word for what Jesus describes the Holy Spirit with in John 14, 26. Jesus speaks and he says, but the helper, a title of the Holy Spirit, paraclete. Do you know that it's the same root word for encouragement? You could translate that the encourager. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That term, that title for the Holy Spirit is used four times between John 14 and John 16. But the important thing is that you read the whole context. Because some of you want to read that and you say, the Holy Spirit, the helper, always keeping me encouraged. Not about everything. He gives a qualification, doesn't he? What does he encourage you to do? Remember the teachings of Christ. If you look at what Jesus said in his earthly life, did he say some hard things? Did he give some truths that are hard to swallow? Yeah, but here's the problem some of you have. You read that and you're like, Holy Spirit reminds me of the red letters. Jesus wrote the Old Testament. Did you know that? Jesus wrote everything in the Gospels, not just the red ones. Jesus wrote Colossians. Jesus wrote all of the letters of Paul. He wrote all of the letters of John. Jesus wrote the whole New Testament. Jesus wrote all 66 books. That's what we mean when we say it is inspired of God. These are the words of Christ that he's given us to live an actual Christian life. And this is what the Spirit is giving you. Some of you are seeking a special word that the Holy Spirit will give that is unique to you. He's out of them. He put them all in the Bible. And that's what you get. And so if you want to know what the Spirit is encouraging you with, pick this up and read it. Otherwise, here's the problem so many of you are going to find yourself in. You're going to call something a special message from the Holy Spirit that keeps you encouraged that didn't come from the Holy Spirit at all. At best, it came from your sinful flesh. And at worst, it came from Satan himself. 
The only way you can be sure that anything is a message from God to you is to read it in the scriptures. It must align with his word. You want a life that is about Jesus. You do not want a life that is about you and your feelings because he is superior. That is why in verse 4, Paul instructs them away from something. He comes alongside them. He encourages them to be about, to be in, to be for Christ. And then he encourages them away from something, doesn't he? What does he encourage them away from? From being deluded by the plausible arguments that some are going to bring into the church. That phrase, plausible arguments, in some translations, it may be persuasive rhetoric. Both are fine translations. What it means is the false teachers that we've been talking about in this series that had come in the Colossian church that were seeking seeking to convince them away from the sufficiency of Christ, away from the supremacy of Christ, away from trusting the atonement of Christ for their salvation. He's saying these false teachers can be convincing. How are they going to be convincing? They're going to come in and they're going to say some encouraging words. They're going to offer persuasive rhetoric. In other words, they're no dummies. They're smart people. They're going to have convincing arguments and you're going to want to buy into those arguments. And those arguments are going to try to make you feel better about your situation, even if your situation is you walking away from Jesus Christ. At first glance, people in the Colossian church were convinced by their arguments. That's why this letter was written. And this same thing has happened in churches all over the nation. Even if we just look at the last few years, the false teachers have come in with arguments of intersectionality, with arguments of critical theory, all forms of wokeness to convince people to follow culture's lies because they don't want to feel bad about themselves and they even do it and we give in to it. Why? Because we don't want people to call us hateful. We don't want people to call us bigoted towards anyone. But the reality is that they were selling lies that were anti-gospel. Don't fall for the lies. So many have come into the church telling us that we should base so much on how we feel because we need to be united. And it's with this very subtle false doctrine called standpoint epistemology. That's what people are doing when they say, well, that's your truth. What about my truth? Friends, I don't have a truth. I've either got the truth or I've got my lies. Those are the two options. To put it on a practical level, standpoint epistemology is simply you basing what you believe on the experience that you've had in this world. And whatever it is, intersectionally speaking, that you are dealing with, that's going to define the truth for you. And the person that has been more marginalized, you can trust their truth more than you can trust the truth of the hegemony or the majority culture at that time. I can tell you, that's false doctrine. It's a lie of Satan. And I'm going to give you some standpoint epistemology from me right now. I've been a big boy my whole life. I don't know if you've noticed, but you can see it. I'm overweight. If you don't think so, let's talk after. You're the encouragement I need. (laughs) I want to feel good about myself. But here's the deal. You don't want to be fat phobic, do you? So you better not tell me that I'd be healthier if I lose 20 or 30 pounds because that just means you're fat phobic. You haven't had my experience. I've got my truth and plump is pleasant, baby. (laughs) 
But here's the problem with that. That's obviously a lie. Because let me tell you, when you're in your 40s, your fat starts talking to you. It'll do it through your lungs. It'll do it when you're bending over. It'll do it when you're trying to tie your shoes. It'll do it when you go to the doctor's office big time. And it tells you you're at risk for this, you're at risk for this, you're at risk for this. You better change things or this is waiting around the corner. You don't want this, you don't want that. So if you want to live longer, because you don't meet a lot of 300-pound 80-year-olds. We have convinced ourselves as a culture that we should never be discouraged to the extent where it can literally end our lives. You need the truth more than you will ever need lies. And it doesn't even have to be about some kind of special philosophy that's pervasive in culture because we fall for the same thing when we make it ultimate to feel better about being unhappy in whatever thing isn't going right in our lives. Some of you want to deny that you should be unhappy in your parenthood. And so you want people to tell you you're doing a great job as a parent even if your family is falling apart. And you would rather be encouraged about bad parenthood than you would to be to repent from sin and actually be a good mother or actually be a good father and do the job that needs to be done and realize that you're just a selfish mess that cares more about yourself than you do about your kids. But no, you need to be encouraged about your parenthood. No, sometimes you just need somebody to look you in the face and say, grow up. You want to be encouraged about the stability of your marriage rather than admitting that you're a selfish husband or you're a selfish wife. But you want somebody to tell you, no, it's okay, you're great. No, some of you are bad husbands and you need to stop looking at porn and you need to stop ignoring your wife. And some of you are bad wives. No, he can't spend every waking moment of every waking day watching reality shows with you. And I'm sorry if that doesn't make you feel good, but he needs to get out there and he needs to make money to pay the mortgage. But you just want to feel better about your plight. No, you need to be discouraged. There's a holiness to some discouragement. Friends, some of you, you just want the self-help of someone telling you to find security and happiness in your singleness rather than discouraging you and telling you, no, maybe you're making an idol out of things that you shouldn't make an idol of. And maybe you should better some things about your life and stop feeling sorry for yourself and get out there and do something with purpose. Some of you have made the church about finding people for you to hang out with that are your own age, with your same feeding habits, with the same hobbies that you want to do on the weekend. And you're like, well, there's nobody here my age. Why aren't you doing that for people here my age? I'll tell you why. Because I'm not forming youth group part two for you. And I'm actually trying to do something for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can also tell you, I'm not a matchmaker. I'm not going to find you a spouse. I can tell you, I've tried to do that before. And I've made some matches that were from the pits of hell. And I'm out of that business. <laughs> I ain't playing matchmaker for nobody else. If you, I will put your oil with someone else's water. All right. And it ain't going to mix. And I won't take responsibility either. I got plausible deniability. I wasn't involved at all. I'd be like, I don't know how they met at a bar. I don't know. 
Must have been one of the websites. <laughs> Friends, stop being obsessed with how you feel. God's encouragement, though, will always lead you to growth in Christ. I promise you that. What should the Colossian church do about their lives to combat the lies that are coming? Paul tells them in verse 5, it's two things, very simple. He uses two terms. The first one is good order. The second one is the phrase that they need firmness of faith in Christ. Good order and firmness are actually two terms that can also be translated discipline and stability. The very thing some of you are running from. He tells them they need discipline and stability. These two things are missing in so many people's lives. And Paul is telling them to get themselves together and focus on grounding themselves in the truth of Jesus. Because the only way to combat lies is with the truth. And rather than being obsessed with how you feel, you need to start being obsessed with the truth of Jesus. You need to stop saturating your life with self-help and start saturating your life with the gospel. Many of you are on a path towards deception and you don't recognize it because you are being deceived. It's not complicated. Deceived people rarely know it because they're deceived. If the gospel doesn't encourage you, i got a question for you. Do you really believe it? And you have to ask yourself that question. If when you look to the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done for you versus what you deserve, and that doesn't bring you encouragement regardless of where you are in life, do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Good order is what the church tries to do by providing Environments of discipleship. That's what discipline is. There is a positive form of church discipline. It's why we cultivate all of the environments that we cultivate. And the stability that you have in life, that firmness of faith in Christ, is only going to happen if you know Christ and you live your life in following Him. And no one can do that for you. It necessitates that you leave the lies that you are basing your life on behind and actually anchor your life to the gospel and saying, regardless of what anyone says, regardless of what anyone does, I'm not moving away from Jesus Christ. Even if everyone walks out of the door, I'm in Christ. That's what stability of faith actually looks like. But when you build your life on other things, you just get the lies. You just get the disorders. But look in verse 6. The apostle writes and he says, therefore, in other words, because all of this is true, he's going to tell them again, what do you do with this? As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And I love that verse seven ends with the term thanksgiving before he gets into verse eight, because verse eight continues the same thread. He ends with thanksgiving because what is the natural outlet of being encouraged? Thanksgiving. It's, the, it's a reaction. Paul's saying, I'm writing you to encourage you, and I'm praying you will order your life in such a way that you will be encouraged. Because if you are encouraged, you will be thankful. Because number three this morning, the answer is always to build your life by walking in Christ. I know some of you think that 
At some point, some devotional book coined the term walking in Christ. And so you've been asked before in your life, how's your walk with Christ? If you've been asked that, that's not some kind of pie-in-the-sky reality. That's actually a biblical ideal that Paul talks about here. He talks about walking in Christ. His immediate application is that just as they receive Jesus, they must now walk in Jesus. And that is Paul's answer to the Christian life. If there is no walk, there is simply no faith. If you want to protect yourself from those plausible arguments Paul was talking about, that persuasive rhetoric of those false doctrines and ideologies in this world, then you must move with Jesus, is Paul's point. I think at times, many of you want to overcomplicate the answer to what you need in order to excuse yourself from doing the necessary work. This is not complicated stuff. This is actually very simple stuff. But sometimes we complicate it because we think, well, if the answers to my problems are complicated, even if subconsciously what you're doing is, is you're saying, then I can avoid actually putting forward any effort to fix things. That's not going to give you firmness of faith in Christ. That certainly isn't going to help you walk with Christ. The answer to lies will always be the truth. You must know the truth in order to know what the lies look and sound like. And Paul spends many of his letters in the New Testament dealing with these very issues. In 1 Timothy 4, the apostle writes again to young Pastor Timothy, saying that lies will not cease in this age. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's pretty serious language. But note he starts. Some people are going to depart from the faith because they're going to get tricked. They're going to pursue false doctrine. This is a serious enough issue that Paul distinguishes between Christian and unchristian in it. He says to pursue false ideologies means that you are not a Christian. And you may ask, well, which false doctrines are that serious? Simple. All of them. If you entertain the lies of Satan for a moment, you are putting yourself at risk. You are putting yourself in danger. And established faith necessitates building on truth. Do not let any of the lies of the enemy in. He says you have a seared conscience. You will have the teachings of demons. I don't think anybody in this room wants that in all honesty. Whether it is the lies of secularism that will just make you materialistic, whether it is the lies of Mormonism, whether it is the lies of the prosperity gospel, whether it is the lies of critical race theory, or even the lies of basing it all on how I feel in my own experience, the victims of these lies are always the same. People who are not established in the faith. And so what does Paul say to do? Establish yourself. That's where Paul draws his line of distinction. The more mature you are in your faith, and yes, that means your knowledge and your practice that is coming from Scripture and the natural law of God, then the less likely you are to fall for lies. And so it's the conclusion. Do not be a nominal Christian. Be an actual follower of Jesus Christ. 
Read your Bible. Memorize scripture. Think about the Bible. Commit to serving the church. Have your family in church. Get in a community group. Form a discipleship group. Get to core classes. Read good books. Pray all the time with your family. Tell people about Jesus as much as you can. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, and I'll close, stresses why we seek to mature in the faith. Paul writes that we do all this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by what? The waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, plausible arguments, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's why. It's all about the truth. To be all about Jesus, you need to know all about Jesus. And you need to walk with him and for him every day. A few application points this morning. First, know the truth to identify lies. Some of you want to study all the false religions and you haven't even studied your own. You don't know lies by studying the lies. You know it by saturating your life in truth. Friends, saturate your life in the word of God and you will be able to identify and expose the lies of the enemy. Secondly, unite around the truth or you will be divided by lies. Thirdly, avoid false teachers and correct false teaching. I seek to do that for you but you must be willing to do that for yourself and for the sake of others as well. Fourthly, crucify the temptation to live by feeling. Your feelings are not God. And then finally, move toward being established in the faith. But you're not going to get there by sitting stagnant. Move. Because Jesus is moving. And if you want to follow him, Gotta go with them.